Welcome to the BD8.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Mediate.com podcast. I'm your host, Veronica Kravner. I'm also a mediator, and this is a podcast about all things mediation related. And I am super thrilled that today, as our very first guest, I have my colleague, my friend, Kwame Christian. Just by way of background, uh, Kwame is the director of the American Negotiation Institute. He is a highly sought after speaker in the fields of negotiation and conflict resolution. And he's here today to talk to us about how mediators can help facilitate conversations about race. And Kwame, this is an area that he has extensive experience in. He routinely provides presentations on how to have difficult conversations about race at work. He is also the host of the hugely popular podcast on negotiation called Negotiate Anything. And if you haven't checked it out, you definitely should. Um, it, it's way up there on my list. Also, he's got an awesome book called Finding Confidence in Conflict, How to Negotiate Anything and Live Your Best Life. He's got a great TEDx Dayton talk, also called Finding Confidence in Conflict. He's an attorney, he has mediated, and I, again, I can't say enough good things about this guy, and I'm sure there's a few other roles I'm missing, but um, hey, Kwame, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for being the very first guest on the Mediate.com podcast. I appreciate it, Veronica. Thanks for having me, and it means a lot to me because, uh, listen, listeners, um, Veronica is very modest. Veronica was my boss in <laughs> when I was mediating, so I learned everything that I know from her. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for that plug. I appreciate that. Hey, the respect is mutual. And I, before we get into it, I just want to share a fun story. So full disclosure, like I said, Kwame and I are friends. And um, also, I am a trainer for his company, the American Negotiation Institute, through my business, Mediate to Achieve. And I just want to share a few weeks ago, we were co-presenting a training. And I have to say, Kwame, I think you have totally hit rock star status in the field <laughs> of negotiation and conflict resolution, which is super hard to do because I will tell you folks at the end of this training that we did, there were people lining up asking for Kwame to autograph his book. And I thought to myself, that is so cool. Like I don't know any other mediator, any other attorney, anyone else in the field of conflict resolution and negotiation who is autographing their book. So that's totally awesome. I, I'm so impressed and I'm so proud to just be able to observe it, right? Thank you. Yeah, well, you've, you've been there from the beginning. You know, one of the things I always say is uh, the line between crazy and genius is success. And you saw me back when I was crazy, <laughs> <laughs> hatching my plans and everything. So it's, it's a fun journey. And I know we've been talking a long time about um, your unique contributions to the field, too. There's a book percolating in your brain. I, we've been talking about that for a while. So it will be only a matter of time, my friend, before you are doing the same thing. <laughs> I, I know we've been talking about it. I will. I'll have to. I'll have to get on that and start practicing my autograph. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well. Well. Hey. Let's get to it. Um, so, you know, I think you and I have had tons of conversations. You know, about mediation, about conflict resolution, and you know, our listeners, our mediators. I know they are no strangers to helping folks engage in 
um, challenging, difficult conversations, right? That's just sort of part of the role of being a mediator. And, you know, one thing that I, I really appreciate and respect about your work is you've really developed this framework that you call compassionate curiosity. And I'm really interested to, you know, have a conversation about this so that our listeners can learn more because, you know, when we think about mediators, not only facilitating difficult conversations, but also um, conversations about race. I mean, not every mediator has had the opportunity to facilitate that type of conversation, right? And there are, you know, some additional skills beyond what you would learn in, for example, a basic mediation training that could be really helpful to help folks productively and respectfully engage in a conversation about race. So, can you tell us about your compassionate curiosity framework? Yeah. And so for the folks listening, especially if you've had a lot of experience resolving conflict, you'll see how this is powerful for conflict in general, because that's how I created it for the first book, Finding Confidence in Conflict. And then just last year with all the social unrest, people started to ask for content on this topic. How do I have this conversation? It keeps on coming up. I don't want to get canceled. I don't want to offend people. How do I do it? And so the framework applies here really well too. And so step one is getting is uh, acknowledging and validating emotions. Step two is getting curious with compassion. And step three is joint problem solving. And it helps you to know what to say and when to say it with maximum impact. And it's really designed for the really emotional conversations because acknowledging and validating those emotions, that's what you need to do up front so we can start to lower that level of emotionality so we can have a higher level conversation. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, you know, I love how, especially with that first one, acknowledging emotions, joint problem solving, I mean, that's something that's going to be reminiscent of know, what mediators have come across, like in their basic training. And, you know, I know you and I have had this conversation before. I mean, you know, I like to, to think of your compassionate curiosity framework as just sort of an additional layer that you can put on top of your, for example, basic mediation training skills. I mean, in particular, I love the, the step that you call um, getting curious with compassion. And I know I've heard you talk about ways to ask questions, like asking open-ended questions and not asking questions that involve the word why. I mean, that in particular, can you, especially if we're gonna help parties engage in a respectful and productive conversation about race, can you help us understand like, why is it that we want to avoid the word why? <laughs> yes, and it's hard to do, right? It is, it is. <laughs> and so this is something that I got from my, my friends who are hostage negotiators. Um, I've learned a lot over the years in, I call it professional cross-training from other disciplines. So people in the CIA, FBI, um, police interrogators, hostage negotiators, they have a lot of really handy techniques that we could use to improve our skills. And as I started to read these books, I, I sat down and I said to myself, have I ever asked a good question in my life? I thought I was good at this, but these folks are really, really great. And so with the word why, what happens is that it can trigger defensiveness because people associate that with judgment. So you have a, you have a daughter, I have a son, we're about the same age. And I know that when Kai would spill something inexplicably or something like that, I would just say, Kai, why did you do that? Why? And so why has always been associated with judgment throughout our lives. And even if you're, you're genuinely asking why you want to find out why, 
they will, it's more likely for them to interpret negativity in the way that you're asking the question just because you use that word. If somebody's emotionally triggered, it's more likely for them because of that negative negativity bias to interpret everything through that negative lens. So what you can do is turn every question that you want to start with why into what or how. That allows you to get to the same information, but with less risk. I like that. What or how? Because I could see, especially with, you know, this type of conversation, folks are probably already hesitant, already anxious, right? I mean, as you mentioned, they're they're afraid of being canceled, um, afraid of making a mistake, afraid of offending. So instead of using the word why, um, which as we saw at the beginning, I mean, it's so hard because I think I, and even asking you this question, I use the word why twice, but instead using phrases as how or what, that's mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And so giving the examples, because uh, the question that you asked was, why do we want to try to avoid that word? We could say, so what's the strategy behind avoiding that word, right? The same question, essentially, it gets the same thing, but it just sounds a little softer. Um, one of my friends, uh, Becky Saltzman, who is a curiosity expert, an expert in curiosity, really cool. And she said, another thing that you can do to soften your questions is just ask out of curiosity, that little that little um, preamble out of curiosity, it for some reason tends to soften whatever comes next. So these are just some little tricks that you can use to avoid some of those psychological barriers. Because when you start to get a better understanding of the psychology and just how people can um, interpret things inappropriately, not because they're bad people, but because they're just humans and humans have funny psychological quirks, it helps you to adjust your strategy accordingly and, and lead to more success. That's interesting. And you know, I like that you're bringing up psychology because I think you, know, you and I have had multiple conversations about different psychological biases that we've observed, you know, in mediations and conflict resolution. And, you know, one thing I want to bring up is I've heard you before when you, you talk about um, having conversations about race, how, you know, you want folks to get into the right mindset. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about is assuming good intent, right? And, and, and we know just from um, engaging with conflict that, you know, there is this tendency for parties, there's the, the hostile attribution bias, right? There's this tendency for when parties are in conflict for them to interpret the other's behavior as having bad intent. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of that mindset of assuming good intent? Yeah. And so it's like you said, with attributional biases, we're always trying to ask that question subconsciously. Why is this person doing whatever it is they're doing? And so especially if you are um, emotionally um, triggered by whatever is happening, it's more likely for you to assume negativity in what the other person's doing. It's just it's a survival mechanism. So in, in ambiguous situations, it's safer to assume that things are bad, because if you just assume that things are good, if things are bad, then you die. <laughs> that's the that's the psychology behind it. Really simple when you think about it. And so I got this tip from the uh, the book, The Charisma Myth, um, really fascinating book. And one of the things that she would do is she would give an excuse to people. And so essentially, I describe it personally as a helpful fiction. Is it true? 
No, but is it helpful? Yes. So I'm going to roll with it. And so think about in your in our mediations, there are going to be times where we as mediators, we're there genuinely trying our best. And the person is approaching us with hostility. Like we're the bad guy. Like, hey, remember, you're not suing me. You're suing that person down the hallway. Why, why are you taking it out on me? <laughs> right. And so as humans, it's really easy to take that personally. When somebody directs their emotionality at you, especially if you feel as though you're trying your best, it hurts and then you take it personally, which increases your level of emotionality. But if you give them the benefit of the doubt, it helps you to be more effective in the conversation. That's why in my book, I have a section called the benefit of the benefit of the doubt. It's a gift that you give yourself because these conversations are difficult enough by on its own. But then if you approach it, while assuming that the other person is evil or trying to do something wrong or anything like that, um, then you're going through this conversation with an unnecessary emotional burden that doesn't help you to have a productive conversation. And so what I would say is, oh, you know, the person probably, maybe their dog died this morning. That's probably why they're upset. That's probably what's triggering them. That's why there's so much hostility. You know, maybe their parent is sick. That's probably why they're so upset. Yeah. And so then I just give, say, based on my assumption is that I believe this person, given their skill set, their perspectives, and their understanding of the situation, they are trying their absolute best under the circumstances. And sometimes their best isn't very good. But if I believe that they're trying their best, I can still approach this collaboratively because then I can say, even though they're trying their best, I can help them to do better in this situation. And so what it does is that it allows me to approach this strategically in a way that is more collaborative and productive um, versus just assuming the worst and then performing at a lower level. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, you know, I could see that as, as you were mentioning, sort of working both ways, right? So not only, you know, the mediator preparing him or herself to actually facilitate this conversation, but also sort of in doing, you know, private mediation prep with each of the participants in the conversation, just to let them know, like, hey, you're about to engage in a challenging conversation, like be prepared, there may be things that are said that you completely disagree with. However, you know, if you let it impact your emotions, um, it could impact how you participate, right? So if you want to participate at your best, you know, just realize your natural reaction may be to assume something negative, but why not try this other technique of assuming good intent? Yeah, that's right. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's been incredibly helpful for me in, in making sure that I stay focused on the goal at hand. Because what ends up happening is if you get emotional, your goal shifts. When you're emotional, you're concerned about the here and now. And that type of short-term thinking can be problematic. If you're thinking about solving a problem, that's long-term thinking. That's, I call it future-focused problem solving. But I know if I get emotional, I'm not going to be able to do that as well, just because of the, the psychological consequences of emotionality. And so I just try to recognize, all right, there are going to be different stimuli. They're going to, there's going to be evidence. There are going to be things that do, in fact, happen. And my level of emotionality is largely going to be dictated by my perception of that. So I can see the same behavior, but choose beforehand to perceive what I see differently. So I'm still gathering the data so I can be effective in the conversation, but I'm protecting myself emotionally from the, the negative consequences. 
And so I'm curious, you know, so where I can see this coming up for mediators is, say, for example, in a workplace dispute. And I know that you do a ton of trainings for professionals in the workplace about how to have conversations about race. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, I mean, what do you think is the best approach for you know a mediator who's going to help facilitate these conversations about how to structure the process like is this something that you think would be best and most productive if mediators are proceeding in caucus first with each side before coming together in a joint session or would you have participants in joint session from the beginning like what do you think is the most productive way to to begin because that's part of the process is just you know, beginning the conversation, helping folks feel comfortable to have an honest, productive, respectful conversation. Based on my experience, and you've seen this because we've had a lot of conversations about this, I really prefer caucus almost exclusively. It's not until I get to the very end where I see, oh, we're close to getting some kind of agreement, then I'll bring people in. But it's after I've taken a couple of hours to feel them out and determine whether or not this person is capable of having a productive conversation at this time. Now, if we're in the workplace, now that is a is a different beast because then I would be a little bit more keen to put them together a little bit sooner. I'd still want to talk and start in caucus because it's not just information gathering and problem solving, but in that situation, it's a little bit of conversational coaching too. You're about to talk to your colleague. Here are some things that will probably trigger you. Uh, Just heads up. Let's talk about how we're going to handle those situations. So kind of coaching them through it because I know I'm not going to be there forever. And so I want to make sure that they are starting to get an idea of the appropriate skills that they need to have respectful communication with their colleague. So I think down the road, especially if there's going to be an ongoing relationship, regardless, it's important to bring them back together so they can start to have a little bit of positive momentum for that relationship going forward. But as far as starting it off, I am exclusively caucus. Yeah, and, and I will say, you know, I've, I'm the same way now. <laughs> and I'll sort of share with our listeners kind of my evolution. So I remember from my basic mediation training, the way that I was trained at the beginning was to default to joint session for every sort of conflict, no matter what. And then only if things fell apart, did I caucus. And then, you know, it was through Again, you and I cross paths in mediation and we would debrief after our mediations. And I think we both started to realize like, wait a second, why don't we do the opposite? Like, why don't we start from caucus, build rapport and, you know, bring together when we have some sort of positive reason. And I guess the the thought that, you know, this conversation is triggering for me is we both know the impact of anger on someone's mental state, right? On, on the, the, the psychology of decision-making. We know that you know, anger makes people less able to perceive risk and sort of emboldens people. And then that's where you kind of see people falling out of the mediation, falling out of the conversation, just because you know, they're, they're, they're in the throes of that anger. Um, and so, you know, over the years, like, it's like my goal has become, how can I manage the conversation so that realizing anger may come out? I mean, it's a natural emotion. People are going to feel anger, but let's not have the anger directed at like, 
let's not have the participants directing anger at each other. <laughs> because I know if that happens, then it's just so hard to get the conversation, the mediation back on track, right? Mm -hmm. I think about, um, I, I almost take a bit of a medieval approach here. I think about the, uh, the people in our mediations as dragons and they come in and they're breathing fire. And um, when you have two dragons breathing fire on each other, everybody gets burned. And so as a mediator, what I need to do is I need to take that communication that is hot, uh, that spicy language, and then I need yeah. to communicate it to the other dragon in a way that's not so hot. And so I, I get all that information. And I understand that sometimes they're going to be emotional. And um, honestly, depending on the emotion and the, depending on how they express themselves, those emotions, when handled well by the mediator, could be opportunities to show, number one, what matters most to the person, because those emotions will give us signals as to the things that are really important. And sometimes those emotions will be tied to things that are not specifically at issue in the case file. So that's important because it helps us to be more creative, creative problem solvers. So I'm not afraid of that emotion. It can actually be really beneficial. And then secondly, if the person tends to vent and talk when they're angry or emotional, sad, whatever it happens to be, then that's an opportunity to get more information. So I'll give them the opportunity to vent because that helps me, again, gather information so I could be more effective. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, one thought, you know, I've been having that... I'd love to get your take on is, um, so, you know, as a mediator is kind of preparing to help folks engage in a, com in a conversation about race, I mean, can you help us understand, like, what is, what is the difference? Like, I know, so, like I said, you've mediated before, you've mediated lots of different types of disputes. I mean, can you help us understand in terms of just the dynamic of conflict? What's the difference between, say, like, your you know, run-of-the-mill landlord-tenant dispute versus helping folks engage in a conversation about race. So with a landlord-tenant type of dispute, for example, and, and the majority of other cases that we've dealt with, it, the issue is localized. So for instance, landlord-tenant, there's a specific set of issues. Hey, this is not good in my house, um, et cetera, et cetera. I need to find a solution for this. And if we find a solution for that, then we can be pretty okay at that point. But with race, the reason why it's so much, diff much more difficult is that it's a problem that is very societally complex. And so um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a famous astrophysicist says, physics is easy. Astrophysics is easy social issues, that's hard because we still haven't figured that out. And we're right here on earth amongst each other. And we still don't know the answer, but I understand a star much better than I understand a person. Right. And so these are endlessly complex societal issues. So that's the first thing because they're not clear answers to it. The second thing is that these conversations are going to trigger higher levels of emotionality because they tie very closely to our identity and morality. So identity, who I see my, myself to be, and morality, what it means to be a good or bad person. And so we always want to be seen as a good person. And a lot of times it's, it's almost like a, an, a threat to our identity if somebody disagrees with us on one of these issues because we say, I hold this belief because I am a good person. You're saying that this belief is wrong. Are you then saying that I am not a good person? And so these conversations tend to diverge from actual problem solving and addressing the issues to defending one's character and sense of, of goodness and self-righteousness. And so the, it gets off track very, very quickly. And then the last thing is the conversations that we're having about race are always, always, always 
going to be more than just the issue at hand. It's never just about the thing that brought us to this conversation. There's always going to be some level of racial baggage that somebody experiences. So for me, as, as, a, as a black person living in America, I've had experiences. And so every time we have these, we, we have these conversations, it reminds us of those, those experiences from the past. Psychology now is exploring more in depth racial trauma, just like PTSD and how it can kind of flare up in these conversations. And then for a white person, a lot of times people of colors don't, don't um, appreciate the reality that there's racial baggage that white people have in these conversations too. And you know, so it's like, all right, in the past, maybe I've been called a racist when I was sitting here trying my best to understand. Maybe I saw one of my friends get in trouble for having a conversation. So this is risky for me, but now I'm a leader. I can't avoid this conversation in my company. And so I'm deathly afraid of having this conversation. So I'm approaching this with trepidation. And so um, a, everybody's bringing baggage into the conversation. So that's what, these are the different things that make these conversations about race so much more difficult than general difficult conversations. Yeah, I could, I could really see that. Um, and so, you know, as we think about facilitating these types of conversations as mediators, you know, what do you think the goal is for the participants? Because I'm just thinking, you know, if I think back to the times that I've mediated, you know, court cases, I mean, that there, there's a different goal there, right? It's, it's related to the case. I mean, what do you think, what's a, what's a realistic goal for participants in a conversation about race? Is it, is it about changing someone's behavior? Is it about changing beliefs? Like, what do you think the goal is? It depends on the circumstances, but every single conversation should start off with this primary goal. And it is mutual understanding. You have something that you can bring to the table that's valuable. So I want to learn from you. I have something that's valuable that I can bring to the table. So you should want to learn from me. And so if we start these conversations with the goal of mutual understanding, I think that puts us in a better position to be successful, whatever success happens to be. And so then we can transition from mutual understanding to behavior change, to persuasion, but we can't start with persuasion because a lot of times we make the mistake of trying to persuade too soon. How can I tell you that you're wrong if I haven't proven to you that I understand where you're coming from? So that's that, that needs to be objective number one. And it reminds me of the... Um, the Indian folktale about the blind men and the elephant. And so what they, they say is they took three blind men and put them in the room with an elephant. They've never seen or heard of an elephant before. And so they say, feel the elephant, tell me what this thing is. So the first man goes and touches the tail of the elephant and says, the elephant must be like a long rope. That's what an elephant is. And the other man goes and touches the leg and says, the elephant is like a long, tall column. That's what an elephant is. The other man touches the tusk and says, an elephant is like a spear. It's long, hard, and sharp. That's what an elephant is. And so the question is, which of the men was right? Like all of them and none of them at the same time. And a lot of times when it comes to issues of, about race, it's that it's not necessarily that somebody is wrong. It's that based on that very, very small part of the elephant that they're seeing, that is what they believe is right. And so at the beginning of the conversation, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help us to see the entirety of the elephant. There are parts of the elephant that you see that I can't see. 
I have a very different lived experience. So I need you to show me that part. And then similarly, there are parts that I see that you can't see. So I'm going to show you that part. And if we approach this collaboratively to try to help each other understand the situation in a more holistic fashion, that gives us the momentum we need to stay on the right track during these conversations. And I just want to really highlight something that you said. I love how you started this with, you know, we need to commit to mutual understanding, right? Because that really kind of comes full circle to the compassionate curiosity framework. And, you know, that second step, getting curious with compassion and, you know, acknowledging emotions, joint problem solving. I like how just kind of that description, it sort of ties it all together, right? Like mutual understanding that I just wanted to highlight that. That's awesome. Um, and, and so, you know, as mediators are kind of thinking about, you know, how to continue to develop themselves, to continue to learn, I mean, do you have any, I know you, you've rattled off a few book recommend, book recommendations throughout this episode, but, um, any other tips or suggestions for, you know, how someone, how a mediator who's maybe, you know, never encountered, um, or never helped folks engage in a conversation about race before in their prior mediations, but now they're about to encounter that for the first time. Any other tips for how they can prepare for that? I would say start to do some research as much as you can. Start to engage in self-learning so you can be more educated on the topic. I think that's really important. And also start to become a little bit more aware of when race, race is at issue. And a lot of times it's surprising. So I'll give an example. So I remember before I had a son, um, my first son, Kai, five years ago, I would have friends and I would hear people talk about, oh, I'm a parent. And um, they would always find ways to talk about their kids just all the time. And like I would talk about something that seems absolutely, you know, separate from them, their identity as a parent, but they would always find a way to bring it in. I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. You like your son, whatever. Right. And then I have a son and then now I get it. So if somebody says, hey, Kwame, do you want to do this presentation in New York on that day? That's about my kids because now I have to consider childcare. If it's like, hey, Kwame, do you want to get up early and do X, Y, Z? Well, you know, I've been up all night with this newborn, so that's about my kids too. And we can recognize that when we transition from being having no children to having children, we just recognize how that identity as a parent affects far more than what we would have initially thought. Everything is about our kids, everything. And so I think for, um, for specifically white people in the US, they've been able to live a life where they weren't as consciously aware of their race. You didn't have to think about it as often. And so a lot of times people are surprised where they say, how is this about race? It doesn't make sense to me, but it's because it touches on the person's racial identity in a way that you cannot see. And so I think what we have to be aware of is that a lot of times race will play a role when it doesn't seem like it can or should play a role. And so we have to be more aware of that and be humble enough to ask questions and just say, out of curiosity, is there something that's happening here that I'm missing? Is there something because of my lived experience that I'm missing? If there is, feel free to tell me. If not, no worries, we can move on right? Just something as humble as that, where it's a clear signal. Um, hey, there, there might be something I'm missing, not, hey, 
you're um you're you're from latin america so you know you're different educate me <laughs> you know that's an awkward way to do it but you could just say hey is there something i'm missing i do this too because yes i'm i'm black but i'm not asian i'm not latinx right so there are things that i miss too and i think once we recognize that based on our perspective there are things that we simply can't see it'll help us to be more aware of when race is an issue and then now we have the skills to have the conversation in a much more productive way too I like that because that shows an an openness, a willingness to try to understand. Like, is there something that I'm missing? Right? Like that that ties back into that commitment to mutual understanding that you mentioned earlier. Well, that's exactly. fascinating. Well, and so I want to ask. I believe you are in the middle of writing a book, right? about yes. how to have conversations about race. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Exactly. And that's the exact title because <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not very inventive. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. We finished the manuscript, which is exciting and um, poor planning on my part because we had the baby and the manuscript due on the exact same day. I don't oh, know wow. what I was thinking. That was just, that was, <laughs> that was a uh, foolish, but we got it done. We got it done. And so um, we're, we're well on our way. So that book will come out next fall. Um, so really excited to get the the second one uh, going. Well, very cool, very cool. Well, Kwame, as always, this has been great fun. I think this is maybe what is it? Maybe the fourth podcast episode of one or another that we've done, and it's always great fun. Um, and how can you know if folks want to learn more about your work? How can they find you? Yes. So check out our podcast, Negotiate Anything and Ask with Confidence. And I guess this is a cool time to announce we're going to have a third podcast. We're going to announce this in August. It is a Spanish podcast, Negociación cool. Desde Cero. So um, Simon Perez, who's um, our manager of Latin American Affairs, he's handling that podcast. Very, very exciting about that one. So check out the shows. If you're interested in negotiation and conflict resolution trainings, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com is the place to, to go for that. We, we are only... We're good because we have great trainers like Veronica with us. So we appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Hey, <laughs> it, it, it's good to have it's good to have talented friends, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, again, Kwame, thank you, thank you so much for being on the very first episode of the Mediate.com podcast. I'm looking forward to more to come. You are always welcome on the podcast, Kwame. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Awesome. Well, that wraps up this very first episode of the Mediate.com podcast. Uh, I look forward to more episodes and um, joining you all for the ride. And thank you. Thank you. And talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.